It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, it's Stephen here. Because there are so many stories coming out of the election result, we're giving you not one but two episodes of the New Statesman podcast today. You're listening to part one, in which Anoush, Alva and I discuss in granular detail what's going on in the Labour Party, the reshuffle, and what it all means for Keir Starmer's leadership. In part two, we'll be discussing the implications of the results around the country, and we'll bring in our Scotland editor, Chris Deering, and our elections and polling data journalist, Ben Walker, to discuss some of the local stories with us as well. You can find that episode right after this one in the same podcast feed. But if you're a Labour MP, please do stop telling me how much more you enjoy the Chris Deering podcast than mine. And anyway, on to the Labour Party. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. On today's New Statesman podcast, we're discussing the aftermath of the election results. And also we have an extended You Ask Us section where we try and answer most of your questions about what's going on in the Labour Party and what it all means. So we're speaking in the aftermath of all of the election results. Most of the questions that we've had in from listeners so far, unsurprisingly, have been about what they mean for the Labour Party. Alva and Stephen, you were putting the shift in over the weekend, speaking to everyone in the Labour Party about um, the fallout and also about the way that the leader's office has responded to the elections. Um, Stephen, what's going on at the moment? We've just had a sort of mini reshuffle, haven't we? Yes. So... Keir Starmer's response to the results was to go, you know, this shows Labour are awful, we need to change, we've had this coming for us for a long time, I take full responsibility. Um, and then on uh, the Saturday evening, it, this became, uh, by I, I mean uh, the deputy leader and, I mean, so Angela Rayner notionally had, had the title of party chair, a role which doesn't actually have any function in the Labour Party rule book. Like, it, it it does what the you know it can be the most important job if the leader wants it to be. It can be a bauble if the leader doesn't want it to be. And campaign a national campaign coordinator, which ditto, and like often as uh, someone who's had a job title uh, had a job title rather like that in the eighties said to me once they said what that title actually means is someone who can reliably um, eat excrement. Uh, <laughs> on TV and radio when things have been going badly wrong without creating news. Um, uh, and actually, that latter job was performed, um, I think, very well by Jim McMahon, the Shadow Transport Secretary, rather than Angela Rayner. But so Angela Rayner, um, uh, it was briefed um, by um, the leader's office to the various Sundays. Um, well, 
This is disputed, but I would defy anyone to read any of those stories in the Sundays. And if you believe um, the line the leader's office is now running with, which is that um, actually these these stories were, were, you know, kind of sources close to Angela Rayner, like blowing them up. Just like, I mean, if true, sources close to Angela Rayner are the political minds of a, a generation, so should clearly be running the Labour Party. Um, uh, obviously, because you, you can't constitutionally sack the deputy leader uh, if you are leader of the Labour Party. Um, she essentially went, well, no, I, 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 I want to keep this role. There was a, a, a long back and forth which kind of kept the rest of the reshuffle in suspended animation, various MPs getting increasingly sort of perplexed. Then eventually what happened was is Angela Rayner is now, um, essentially she's now Shadow Michael Gove, um, Shadow Minister for the Future of Work and um, Minister in Charge of Labour MPs, uh, growing horror and fear that Keir Starmer is not up to it. Um, and some other job titles I forgot about. And um, But the real meat of her job is shadowing Michael Gove. Now, of course, because Boris himself doesn't really do a lot of what we would have described as the core functions of Prime Minister, and Michael Gove therefore kind of essentially acts as his kind of water carrier, that basically means she's gone from having a broad and nebulous role that the Labour leader could shrink or expand as he saw fit, to a broad and nebulous role than expands across the whole policy piece that he can't really expand as he sees fit. And if she does it badly, that actually creates quite a lot of problems for the Labour Party. So yeah, the kind of, the like, I would say smart, actually the stupid take from people who wanted to reflexively defend Corbyn is like, well, I haven't seen anything about whether or not she's any good at this. And you're just like, well, that's a bit like saying there's nothing in like the Conservative, you know, you haven't seen anything to suggest any of these leave, vote leave people in the cabinet are any good. Well, Boris Johnson needs to be able to win votes and maintain his parliamentary base. So congratulations on revealing you don't understand how politics works. Um, so she has that role. Annalise Dodd, so I imagine we'll, we'll get on to uh, the topic of that, has been um, demoted to uh, party chair. Uh, and again, it's not quite clear how that will work, given what I've, how, what I've described. And Rachel Reeves... Um, uh, has become a uh, shadow chancellor, moving from uh, what is now Angela Rayner's job. And then a bunch of, uh, of other um, kind of various people have been posted in, in a variety of roles, but broadly the shadow cabinet remains unchanged, other than there are a lot more people with the word shadow secretary of state in the title, which runs roughshod over the other aim of this reshuffle, which was to reduce the number of parliamentary advisors to try and save money. So... Um, not, you know, not not like, I don't think these 37 hours are going to appear on Keir Starmer's Emmy reel. <laughs> Alva, talk us through the, the the different job changes and, and what that says about the leader's office thinking. As Stephen just outlined, I think that you can learn a lot about the, the leader's office's thinking or otherwise from Angela Rayner's now absolutely ginormous job title, um, <laughs> which um, is the product of, um, I think, a, a bit of a, a standoff between the leader and deputy leader over the weekend. As Stephen just alluded to, she she was sacked on Saturday night um, and, you know, discovered that she was going to be sacked through briefings to the Sunday newspapers from Keir Starmer's office. And, and she was contacted by, by the Sunday newspapers and discovered that way. She was supposedly offered a, a much more junior role um, something sort of linked to um, social care, having been a care worker. Um, a, a very obvious demotion, which she didn't want. She was sacked. And then there was this furious backlash, which people who follow the New Statesman will have 
picked up on and um, we were writing about it over the weekend there was absolute furious backlash which I don't think that the leader's office had properly anticipated and and it did come from all parts of the party it really wasn't just a thing coming from the left so basically after Angela Rayner pushed back um, and really demonstrated her heft as a, as a really important figure across the Labour Party with a, a really big power base she has negotiated an absolutely ginormous role which as Stephen says probably doesn't necessarily play to her strengths but I suppose what it reveals about the leader's thinking is that if we are to believe briefings a large part of it was that that she was suspected of having briefed negatively about members of Keir Starmer's staff, which he gets very upset about. Um, we know from, from previous things, he's been very upset by briefings against Ben Nunn, his director of communications, and, and, and then also Jenny Chapman, another um, close aide of his. It's, it's a sort of a burgeoning theme that I think has become very, very clear over the weekend that Keir Starmer feels a really close loyalty to um, this team around him, people who he's known for a long time, who um, worked with him before he was um, leader of the party and, and, and who he, he brought in um, when he was leader. Lots of members of the shadow cabinet and lots of MPs are not super happy with um, the advice that he's getting from them or, or don't necessarily think that all of those people in his team are up to the job but I think what the the face-off with Angela Rayner showed is that he doesn't take kindly to those criticisms um, but also that he was unable to to punish Angela Rayner for as he suspected briefing against them so I, I think that that's the sort of the big lesson from Angela Rayner then in terms of the listeners of the podcast will be delighted that we're finally moving on to you know the final episode of the of the ongoing soap opera of whether um, Annalisa Dodds was going to be replaced by um, Rachel Reeves. That has finally happened. I think I know Yunish and Stephen will have lots of thoughts on this too. Actually, I think what that reveals is that Rachel Reeves was already a really significant person in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet um, a rare person actually on the shadow cabinet who does have his ear beyond the as I mentioned that team of advisors um, who work closely with him in his office a rare person who actually is a power broker at the top of the Labour Party someone that he really does listen to and I think that moving her to the shadow chancellor role is just a manifestation of of that role that really she already um, inhabited um, for Keir Starmer and in his and in his leadership of the Labour Party, um, there's the there's the really obvious thing. I, I outlined this in a column in the magazine uh, the week before last. The obvious caveat is that she is to his right politically, but I think you know some people would be hoping that given that she is, people can can gather from from an interview that I did with her. She's absolutely sick of being in opposition and has fire in her belly and is one of the, I think, one of the most ambitious and determined members of the Labour Party. Um, And I think that Keir Starmer just wants some of that at at the top of his team, even if they don't necessarily agree politically. So that could be a disaster or actually maybe it would help. Then the other things, I think everyone... I mean, to quote one MP, everyone is slightly scratching their heads. They, they don't really understand why Nick Brown, the, the chief whip, has been 
sacked at this point and replaced with the deputy chief whip. They've kind of parted on good terms, supposedly, but it certainly it doesn't seem like Nick Brown, um, a really like veteran chief whip who served under so many um, different Labour leaders who's seen as a real figure of unity doesn't really no one seems to think that Nick Brown was responsible for the defeat in Hartlepool um, so that doesn't really make much sense either all in all I think it just has weakened Keir Starmer's leadership slightly or his his credibility among MPs I think lots of members of the shadow cabinet were already feeling a little bit neglected and shut out of decision making and this has really not helped and everything seems to have been viewed through the prism of loyalty and disloyalty as we saw with the um, Angela Rayner drama over the weekend so I think that that alienation has really just been exacerbated but none of the the changes that maybe people in the party were really hoping for have materialised some of this meltdown and this chaos from the leader's office started after the Hartlepool by-election result and some and the ir- initial picture of disappointing results across some councils in England. And that, that's the reason why these kind of by-elections are important. I think I was saying this on the last podcast, which is they're not necessarily important in terms of what the result shows, which was expected, but they are important in terms of what they reveal about how the party reacts so we, you know, we got a particularly sort of skittish, impulsive, slightly chaotic picture of Keir Starmer's operation in response to those results, even though, you know, there were there were plenty more results yet to come, which showed a slightly more mixed picture for the, for the Labour Party elsewhere and, and a successful picture in Wales. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Us. And we're doing a bumper You Ask Us section today because we've just had so many questions about the future of the Labour Party, about the reshuffle, about what it says about individual Labour politicians. Um, And Alva, you've picked up quite an interesting question that someone sent into You Ask Us about that, haven't you? So this was a question from Roger who says he normally loves the pod, etc., but has written in to say this reshuffle has been overshadowed by reports of rows and malicious briefings where political correspondents, including the New Statesman team, naive and insufficiently critical about the sources and intent of briefings. Are they now doubling down on stories about party discord to justify having been gulled? Um, Stephen, what do you think? No, I think this is fair enough because, of course, um, everyone who works for a Sunday newspaper and everyone who works for the New Statesman 
we're actually not allowed by law. Journalism law means we can't save numbers to our phones. Uh, and so if someone calls us, we just have to guess whose side of a dispute they're on. And of course, Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner's people all sound exactly the same. They have exactly the same approaches. So poor Caroline Wheeler, when she, she wrote an article about, um, about you know, what had happened, she, I mean, she was basically would have just been having to guess. Could this have been Starmer's office? Could this have been Rayner's office? The, the Guardian, similarly, just we had to guess. And we, of course, had to just had to guess, right? And so it's entirely possible that everyone in uh, every Labour-facing journalist has, of course, just a horrendous misunderstanding, failed to understand who has said what at what time. Or, right, or, right, an alternative theory, which I'm just, I'm just going to, like, throw it out there. They're equally plausible. Or um, uh, a Labour leadership having um, embarked in a mystifying act of self-harm opted to brief to some other journalists this, um, you know, this fictitious line that no one connected with the Sunday Times, the Observer, the Guardian, Labour list ourselves knows what they're talking about. Um, which, which, by the way, I would say is also typical of some of the problems with stakeholder management than um, beset uh, this leadership team. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's possible, right? I, either theory could, could be true. Um, which one do you, which theory do you reckon, Alvaro, on balance? I mean, the thing is, I suppose... This is a really interesting example where I suppose for some listeners who are broadly fans of Keir Starmer's leadership, this is the first time where they are under the impression that Keir Starmer and his team have a side of the story that isn't being sufficiently or fairly covered. Um, I, which, 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 as you say, basically, is just is just not the case. If um, if we're saying that that Angela Rayner was sacked, it is because she was sacked. And of course, obviously, I wrote up the the very angry response to that among um, figures from all sides of the party, people in the shadow cabinet, as well as you know left wing backbenchers, people you know from the soft left, people from the right that. Um, I wrote that up and I suppose people might find it annoying that that amplified the story um, or that, um, you know, that maybe Angela Rayner and and her allies had an agenda in hitting back against her being sacked. Um, but that's just sort of the way the cookie crumbles. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the polite answer to that is um, that, yeah, we're confident in, in our sourcing and, um also that I suppose this is the this is this is just the way that this weekend was. You know, this is the first time you saw those divisions between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner come to the surface. And that does mean that um some criticisms of Keir Starmer um coming from higher up than you would normally expect were becoming apparent over the weekend. Yeah, I think that moves us on to the um interesting question, which is um what is this row, which did happen? You know, we didn't have a situation which you know every Labour first thing journalist yeah had had a, a, a collective stroke. What are the consequences long term of what has happened with the Labour Party, particularly in terms of the uh, the new posts that Angela Rayner has? 
Yeah, so I suppose my answer to that is that it's just very much my impression that the past few days have damaged Keir Starmer's authority within the party, not necessarily enough to um, risk his leadership at that point. I've done lots of radio appearances over the past 48 hours where all the presenters seem to think that his leadership is at risk, which I just don't think is the case um, because there isn't really an obvious contender and there's no one waiting in the wings. I don't think it's so much about that as just, I think the, frankly, the level of respect among Labour MPs of all stripes has been diminished slightly um, because there is this feeling regardless of, regardless of, of people's precise political affiliations within Labour, that it was just a really strategic misfire to hold a reshuffle at this point to have that conversation with Angela Rayner at that point to overshadow some really quite good results elsewhere for the Labour Party and to amplify this message that the Labour Party is in crisis when um when you know firstly you could you could change the narrative around how Labour actually did perform in those elections at least to a certain extent but also even more importantly there are you know there, there are bigger shows in time between the SNP and the Conservatives that Labour could have could have bowed out of so I think that um the that's that's the main that's I think that the main result of this um we can we can come on to what this the precise changes about personnel mean but mainly I just think that lots of people are just not happy with how this was handled and I think have lost a little bit of confidence even if they remain supportive of Keir Starmer just have a have a little bit less confidence in what he's doing and in the advice that he's getting yeah obviously one of the problems all political parties have is people people first take an argument because they know they need to have it for expedient reasons and then they start to convince themselves of it Broadly, a lot of the people who were saying, oh, you know, these results show that we need to um, recover the spirit of 2017, we need to ditch 2017, most of those people didn't actually think that the Labour Party's policy position was why what was happening to them. Of, you know, I was on Thursday, but, you know, obviously what the results were, were, were about that. But what what most people will say would say, yeah, kind of go like, really? Do you really think this is primarily about about this? They go, look, look, no, but um, we need to react in some way. You know, we need to react in some way to this, so we we should react to it by doing the stuff we need to do anyway. And and that, of course, meant then the sort of the the actual threat to him was kind of sort of virtual, right? It's like um, it was a yeah, the the, the results were a drop intro to the criticisms people wanted to make. Um, Starmer's office anyway, and about his political approach in general. The big difference since then is the actions over the last 37 hours have, have weirdly, I think, both slightly strengthened his position and hugely undermined his authority. Now, how have they managed to do both of those things? Well, because the thing I've heard from multiple people across Labour's traditions is this isn't going to work and afterwards will be blamed. That is the view of the right of the Labour Party, the centre of the Labour Party, and the view of some people on the left of the Labour Party, although some of them are more optimistic than, than it, not only will it not work, but it will be the instrument of their revival. And of course, if you think about what those incentives mean in terms of the barrier to a challenge, that means that uh, large numbers of people in the PLP will be heavily incentivised 
for the moment to go, whoa, 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 after him comes, you know, comes catastrophe of one kind or another. I think, you know, there, there's an underlying issue than, um, than what people think for the most part is not that um, the appointment of Rachel Reeves, which we'll get to in more detail, signals um, that Keir Starmer is, 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 is further to the right of the Labour Party than people thought. I mean, someone who is a big fan of Rachel, someone who has themselves been advocating to me pretty solidly for the past year that Rachel Reeves should become Chancellor, said to me, this is, you know, they said, this is the sign that... Um, there are no politics at the core of this operation. And the only way than, than, than this project can work is for the shadow cabinet to carry it. And so obviously that's not, that's not great for his, his authority, not great for his position. And of course, the other thing is he has sort of fired the starting gun on, on people posi- you know, continually positioning themselves. And it, it really cannot, I think, be overestimated the extent to which that one of the troubles Ed had and the problem that Corbyn freed himself from in 2017 to 2019 was people couldn't profile. You could not profile to be the next Labour leader um, in the 2017 to 19 period because there could have been an election tie any time and the unquestioned leader of the... Now, obviously some people did so and they, they did yeah, not inconsiderable harm to, to their own standing a lot of the time by doing so. But it makes you much more stable if you don't have a situation where, I mean, and you should remember this. You remember when Yvette Cooper got a haircut? It became like a, a Labour crisis story because it was like, is this the haircut time that Yvette is going to challenge Ed Miliband? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was very much a politician's haircut, like one of those yeah. like lady politician in power haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I do remember that. At no point was the idea that it was just a nice haircut and Yvette Cooper had just got a nice haircut. At no point was this allowed to be considered. Yeah. It was literally like... It's like Andy Burnham's eyelashes, but that's just yeah. a, perpe- a perpetual threat. <laughs> yeah, right. the, the, the commodity he had then, then has kind of been just pissed away then cannot be underestimated is, is that yeah even like even stuff someone does then isn't necessarily because yeah ed had this problem that like anytime a shadow cabinet minister would do something good people were like ah ah in a bid for the leadership a shadow cabinet minister has done their job like and and i just that is that is the zone um that labor is currently in um so yeah i think that that to me is the the the, the big consequence exactly as, as Alva said. And I think it's really interesting what you said about the the, the drop intro into, you know, criticising things that people already wanted to criticise because you could extend that to people's different analyses of what the Labour Party's challenge is. So what's interesting is when you speak to people from, you know, the very left and from the very right of the Labour Party, they they sound quite similar, like their, their analysis is quite similar, except that, you know, on one side they're saying, well, you know, it's the it's the long shadow of Brexit. It's the people who push for a second referendum position. That's why we're losing places like Hartlepool and other areas. You know, insert area here. And then on the on the on the right of the Labour Party, it's it's this i this idea that the spectre of Jeremy Corbyn still sort of hangs over the party in these places. And and like you wrote, Stephen, you know that can't possibly be true in one place with very similar demographics to another place that happens to be in Wales with very similar demographics. And so that, you know, both of those things are just sort of 
uh, myth that either side of the party are telling themselves for why Labour's in trouble. And of course, we we know, I mean, I went back and <laughs> read some of my articles from 2014 and, and some of yours, Stephen, as well. Like, we, we, we know that we were making these criticisms and talking about the threat to Labour of UKIP, for example, and you know, disappointing performances in by-elections like at Hay- Haywood and Haywood and Middleton, for example. We know that these problems long predate either Brexit or Corbyn. Um, and so it's sort of this story that both sides of the party are telling themselves for why, where Labour is going wrong. And it's a comforting story because, you know, Brexit is something that, uh, you know, is going, is diminishing as a sort of um, political rhetorical talking point, even if it isn't at all done. And Corbyn is no longer in charge of the Labour Party, so also should diminish as an influence. It's so comforting to tell yourself a change of leader or a change of political focus uh, will help us, when actually it's not true. These the, the, Some of the problems that the Labour Party is facing, and, and like we've spoken about on the podcast, you know, it's not clear cut. It is a mixed picture. There's different forces at play. But some of the these the, the, the sort of mainstream, high-profile challenges that the Labour Party has with with changing demographics have been there for such a long time that, you know, you have these two sides of the the party fooling themselves. But the per- the person who loses out from that, and he shouldn't shouldn't be losing out from it if he was, I think, a, a, a more um uh a, a politician with more nous, is Keir Starmer, because while he's supposed to be the uniting candidate who's above factionalism and the infighting we've seen over the past few years, he's allowed himself to to be hammered from both sides because of the way that he's played these election results. Like Alva said, you know, where was the waiting? Where was the cool headedness? Where was the well? Actually, look at these metro look at these metro mayor elections results. Look at these look at these places that we're we're gaining from the Conservatives in in Oxfordshire. You know, look at Wales. Where, where where was the waiting? Where was that? Where was that cool analytical? Um, what's the word? Forensic figure that we all, you know, not all of us, but <laughs> that you know, Keir Starmer was written up as at the beginning of his leadership. So I do think that it is a failure on his part, even if the various factions of the party are not coming out in a good light themselves. Uh, Alva, do you do you want to pick the the next question from the big the big hat o reshuffle questions? That takes us neatly on to the next obvious question, which is that, you know, now that it has finally happened and Annalisa Dodds has been sacked and replaced by Rachel Reeves, what does that actually mean? Stephen, do you want to say your thoughts on this first? The reason why I have said multiple times, well, there are two reasons why I've said multiple times that um, it would be a bad idea to, um, to you know, to, to get rid of Annalise Dodds is the thing that makes Shadow Chancellor unique, right, is that when there's a big set piece, you know, when there's a crime or when there's a business scandal, right, the Shadow Business Secretary is the one who does that set piece event. The Shadow Home Secretary is the one who does that set piece event. Whereas actually at the budget, the Shadow Chancellor is the leader, right? In terms of the the front-facing functions of the Shadow Chancellor, the Shadow Chancellor is the leader, and sorry, is yeah, is the leader, and the role of the shadow chancellor hat is to be a spare pair of brains. Um, they mostly do not cut through. They actually often have a fairly low profile relative to the other, you know, the other big posts in a in a shadow cabinet. Um, and every time I say this, people kind of go like, "Oh, um, Gordon Brown and George Osborne were big beasts." It's just like that's because you remember that they were chancellor lads. Like I, I just would applaud. <laughs> anyone you want now we can go out and do this kind of thing like literally go to your local library get go get lexus nexus up 
open up like any set of kind of political stories about Osborne or or Brown. And there are loads of stuff about, you know, like, oh, do they have enough purchase? Are they serious? Aren't you know, um, you know, this this is the underlying problem of that job because they are against the money guy, the most, the, you know, the most powerful department other than the prime ministers, and in some cases more powerful than the prime minister when the prime minister is, is weak for one reason or another. They are against the money guy, uh, and therefore they they struggle to cut through. But what are, what I have been saying up until you know the last forty hours is the reason why Rachel Reeves would be a disastrous mistake is that. In terms of everything that Keir Starmer's close allies and, you know, the stuff, you know, you know, the, you know he has purported to believe and the things that, you know, his, his supporters in the parliamentary party believe, it would be recreating the Ed Miliband, Ed Balls dynamic, right? Where Ed Miliband, and actually Ed Miliband had a lot more excuse, right? The, there were political constraints on Ed Miliband, which meant then, and also recruitment constraints. There wasn't really a plausible, available candidate from the centre of the party. Um, you, you could not have had Stephen Timms because of his... Um, social conservatism and um yeah traditionally evangelical christian views yeah you couldn't have had uh one of the eagles because they didn't uh do very well in the first shadow cabinet elections so yeah obviously the last ones because uh very sensibly ed abolished that disastrous idea so um he ended up yeah well he ended up actually making yeah the mistake of trying to balance the party factionally first with alan johnson but then when alan johnson came awry he had no option but to pick one of Ed Balls or Yvette Cooper, who, while both undoubtedly qualified for the job of Shadow Chancellor, were not politically aligned. And I mean, I know if you remember, yeah, the Eds, where it felt and they'd, you'd continually hear from both sides, oh, they get on personally, you know, they they have like they had a front row seat to when the Shadow Chancellor and the leader didn't get on. And it's like, yes, but the difference is, is they Labour have replaced Prime Minister and Chancellor who don't agree um, on, you know, kind of personal stuff, but are politically aligned with, you know, Two people who like, you know, like each other fine, but fundamentally disagree on aspects of politics yeah. and economics. Now, the reason why I think the, the case against this move has now changed is um, I just think the jury is out on whether or not Keir Starmer has politics. Right. I mean, th this is the thing that, you know, one MP. Um, yeah. When I was when we were ringing around on the, you know, when we were, you know, being being gulled by, um, by you know, ventriloquists uh, close to Angela Rayner. Um, we were, um, we were, you, you know, I was speaking to an MP who backed both of them, which most MPs who backed Keir Starmer backed Angela Rayner, most MPs who backed Angela Rayner backed his son. And I said, I, I don't understand this. Um, they are, you know, there, there are differences between them, but they're politically pretty close aligned. And this person said, they said, they said, does Keir have politics? They said, increasingly, I just think maybe the answer is he doesn't. And in that case, um, I think the appointment won't work for other reasons, because I don't think the shadow chancellor can provide the economic policy strategy from the shadow treasury. But the other reasons why I thought it might be, a, you know, I'm about to use a, a word starting in cluster that would definitely affect our iTunes rating. The other reason why I thought it might be a, a misguided move, I'm not sure applies so much because of the other actions of this reshuffle. But, but Alvar, as someone who's always been slightly more um, of the view that this wouldn't necessarily be a disaster, what, what are your feelings on it? Yeah, I suppose my my feeling is that if if you've been following 
Keir Starmer's leadership closely for the past few months. It's been really hard to escape the feeling that Annalisa Dodds was already being a bit sidelined and that Rachel Reeves had already manoeuvred to be, if not the shadow chancellor, to be kind of Keir Starmer's right-hand woman in lots of ways and, and a really a rare person, I'm repeating myself here, but a rare person on the actual shadow cabinet who he listens to and lets in when so many of them feel shut out of decision-making, don't like the advice that he gets from his staff, don't know what's going on and and you know, feel a little bit disillusioned. It's the opposite case with Rachel Reeves where he really listens to her and I think that she is playing a bigger and bigger strategic role. As you say, it does look a little, you know, it does look to be the case that Keir Starmer probably doesn't have very committed beliefs on what an economic policy should look like. Certainly, we didn't really see those when he was working with Annalisa Dodds. Um, so I think that in terms of the direction of labor and a vision, I, I think that like clearly there is huge potential for the two to disagree, but I actually don't think that at the moment that's the lay of the land. I think that Keir Starmer seems quite open to taking someone on um, as Shadow Chancellor who gives a lot more direction and imposes her own economic view and really sort of leads from the front. So I think in that sense, I think whatever people's political differences with, with Rachel Reeves or or anything else. I think like no one at all in the Labour Party would dispute that she's really, really driven and an incredibly hard worker. And definitely whether whether people think it's the right strategy or the wrong strategy probably will deliver one. Um, so I think in, in that case, I think um, I wrote last week or a few weeks ago that in a way, if Keir Starmer sacked Annalisa Dodds and appointed Rachel Reeves, it would be admitting that he has a little bit of a problem, which is that he doesn't have enough vision or strategy or direction. Um, and and he's done that. So I think, I think this is him admitting that there's a, a problem and he's turning to Rachel Reeves to fix it. Whether she can fix a problem, which is ultimately Keir Starmer's problem, is a slightly separate question. But I think that's the case um, for her defence. And it'll certainly be, I think incredibly interesting to, to see the difference that that move makes I think it, it could make a really significant difference because Rachel Reeves as as shadow chancellor is so far removed from the kind of economic policy platform that we assumed Keir Starmer was kind of standing on which was continuity Corbyn just like like Stephen often says with a, with a more reassuring chin um she's so far removed from that she didn't serve in Jeremy Corbyn's cabinet so uh, shadow cabinet so what what I don't know why I keep (laughs) promoting (laughs) the Labour Party and the doldrums of opposition to government but yeah um so she she's so distant from that platform does that mean a total overhaul does that mean they don't carry on some of the policies that even people you know on the center of the party you know some figures do do defend them and say how um how they do play popular popularly with the public and they and they do poll well and it just takes a better vibe as we always say and a better sort of like style of leadership to reassure voters that it wouldn't be profligate and it wouldn't be too radical uh and it would be possible because you know some of the stuff on the doorstep when you even in 2017 when Labour did 
you know better than they expected you know lo- lots of the things were well I quite like the sound of that but they'll never be able to do it will they you know so so it's sort of making the making some of those popular policies that are in those manifestos sound 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 um uh, sound reassuring and 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 doable are they, are they going to move away from that because if Rachel Reeves is shadow chancellor, sh- surely she'll want to move the party in a direction, you know, for, you know, in, in a crass way, more rightwards. Um, and so does that mean that they will have a completely different policy platform? And should it be, you know, should it be possible for a change in personnel like that to change the direction, the policy direction of the leadership? Should Keir Starmer represent that kind of vacuum where simply a change in his shadow chancellor can change the entire what we thought was the premise of his leadership. I know it's early days, and people have said that there's been a bit of a, a you know gap where policy should be. But they, they've announced a lot of policies, and it does sound very very similar to the the previous uh, Labour establishment. So is she going to completely change that? And should he be able to to have that complete you know about turn? Um, just by changing someone in that position, really, he should be the person who who dictates that policy from the top. Yeah, so I'm going to do the thing that um, is one of the reasons why the two of you will eventually at a quiet conference um, quietly drown me and pretend that I just passed out and died while very drunk, which is, <laughs> having heard you both say very thoughtful things, I think I've actually, I, I've slightly changed my mind and gone, no, I think this is actually still a terrible idea, even if one accepts the uh, emerging thesis in parts of the parliamentary party than he has no politics right which is everyone has instincts right um and we we've seen this in so a couple of, of vignettes right as we've discussed and obviously Keir Starmer has now publicly committed um to tuition fees right abolishing tuition fees is something that is core to his heart this um so when Becky Long Bailey took to, took over um someone in uh, Becky Long Bailey's office was 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 slightly surprised to basically get a call from the leader's office being like you know look to emphasize blank sheet of paper other than tuition fees they they're still abolished and um this story of course kind of went round various people on the left because they were a little bit like i mean yeah uh, of of course uh of course our rlb is not gonna be the person who comes out and goes by the way um you know all of those kind of i mean the weird irony of course is is Keir Starmer's leadership is already actually more like Becky Long Bailey's leadership bit than his own. But, you know, like she, after having been like, no, I'm actually going to be very frank about being anti-drug legalization, I'm going to be very frank about free movement ending. The, yeah, she was really planning to turn out and like, hey, now I've lost and I'm shadow education secretary. Um, by the way, tuition fees, um, we're keeping them. Um, and and, um, and that, that policy commitment has, has, you know, was reiterated when she was, was, was sacked. Um, and, you know, one of the the actual, the only moment where I think you could genuinely criticise the political operation around the outgoing shadow chancellor was um, around threshold raises, where the view of the shadow treasury was, um, you know, we're not for austerity, we don't think it's the right time for either cuts or tax rises, and we should just say so. And um, basically, the, the view from the leader's office was, oh, well, um, left wing is when the taxes go up. And and that kind of like you know exploded there um you know that you know like that was essentially the reason you had you know Annalise giving the kind of orthodox um, mainstream left economics answer as at the same time on another another TV channel you have Keir Starmer doing the left is when the tax goes up um, and so I think his his instincts probably are what his closest allies say he he will so that will always cause um 
yeah, cause cause a bit of grit. I mean, you know, I, for example, like like to think of myself as someone who's like, oh, I don't care how much someone someone earns. And and then I I I, I read the story of, of a salary of a of a very high powered um you know foreign aid boss, and I just thought, no, no, I realise I have a political objection to this burning person a, a earning uh, nine hundred grand. And I thought, oh, that's weird. I've discovered I've discovered a political objection that I didn't realise I have. And that I think is part of the thing people don't realize about being the leader of the opposition because like stuff happens right you suddenly discover oh do i think there should be an opt-out for protest in lockdown laws or you know do i think yeah and i just think the fact that his instincts are what they are means that it's still still not going to work um what do we make of all of the other um changes there aren't that many of them and I think it does seem likely I don't know what the two of you think but it does seem likely that this was not the reshuffle that he had entirely planned and that he ended up going for a smaller one um because of that backlash um about the sacking of Angela Rayner um but the few changes that he has made those the um the sort of the musical chairs of Angela Rayner um now in Rachel Reeves' old job, as well as taking on some other briefs. Um, Rachel Reeves is the shadow chancellor and Annalisa Dodds is in Angela Rayner's old job as party chair. Um, and then beyond that, we have um, Wes Streeting, um, who was school's minister, has a promotion, so he's properly in the shadow cabinet now in a new role on child poverty. Um, Lucy Powell as well has been promoted um, Nick Brown has been sacked as chief whip and Shabana um, Mahmoud has been um, promoted to the shadow cabinet as well. Um, those are those are all sort of more bitty changes, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's any message, Stephen, that you think should be taken or not taken from those those moves. I mean, I, I'm afraid I, I think the, the message that can be taken is is. Um serious problems within the Labour leader's operation, right? And then so you can, you you know, you don't have to be, um, you know, a deductive genius to see the kind of the ghosts of the of the original planned reshuffle, right? So there are all of these, um, well, as I, I don't think all shadow secretary of states and don't directly, sh- well, they obviously all do directly shadow a minister and then what one assumes will happen is we're treating as shadow secretary of state for child poverty will sometimes shadow the education secretary and sometimes Kate Green as shadow education secretary um, will shadow education. And, you know, now there are obvious examples of where that is a useful thing to do. Two two examples are um, um, Andy McDonald, the shadow secretary of state for employment rights and protections, which is essentially shadow secretary of state for like saying to you know, the kind of the trade unions who are broadly on side or are kind of swing voters on the NEC, don't worry, we still hear you, right? That's what that post exists to do, right? That is why there is a value to having, um, you know, Andy McDonald's shadow, the shadow business secretary and Ed Miliband's shadow, the shadow business secretary. But most of these other ones, and also I guess Preet Gill, who continues as, as international development, right? That is important. Um, because the existence of that job is a way of essentially a, a free way of, of sending saying to you know um, people who care a great deal about international development you know don't worry this department will come back under a Labour government this is still a great priority of ours but most of these I think are probably a pretty good ga- gauge to where people what would have happened if the reshuffle hadn't um, been exploded so you know shadow secretary of state for mental health 
Rosanna Allen Khan. Well, I, I think we can safely say then that is Shadow Secretary of State for realizing you didn't have the political strength to sack John Ashworth. Shadow Secretary of State for child poverty, probably ditto Shadow Secretary of State for education. And so I think mostly what this does is it tells us about some of that. But some of it, uh, I suspect, is, is actually slightly more troubling, right? Which is now I obviously take the view that it is incoherent for the leader's office to believe that it has had a problem cutting through with COVID. I, like, I'm sorry, it cannot, it cannot possibly be the case that it was easier to be the person up against the 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 stunningly attractive furlough guy than it was, than it was <laughs> to be up against the uh, cripes chaps i've just discovered that the virus doesn't take christmas off yeah i mean like that 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 is a, that is that is that is not a serious position um but if you are going to fall, call you know to, you know to to have objections to the um to the shadow cabinet which i again i do think was too early how have um, the defence and shadow home secretaries remained in place. La- La- Labour's policy on those those issues has, has I mean, they're probably their policy is not to have a policy on those issues. It has been a mess. Instead of them like diffusing the issue, what they've actually done is basically go like, "Hey, Tories, by the way, there's a topic on which if you go on it, we have nothing. We will panic, right? Like." Yeah, like those, that's like, you know, the, the shadow secretaries of state for, by the way, the Conservative Party, here's our soft underbelly. If you'd like, we can give you a map to, to better find it. And I just think all of it together just like speaks to a project with no politics and no strategy. And then the various shortcomings that, um, you know, we've talked about, about, you know, lack of willingness to go, okay, what about this? You know, lack of a willingness to, you know, lay out painful dividing lines on crime, you know, Syria, you know, to repeat themselves and not just drown out their actually quite good set of climate change policies that Ed Miliband announced. Then those instincts, you know, so they've, you know, they, the one positive appointment, which I think the fact that um, this kind of, ended up in like that again another hint than the, the story in the sunday times was not uh enemies of the leadership um so the appointment of deborah mattinson formerly of britain thinks to be their director of strategy who i mean a a, a labor mp who's a, a big uh fan of deborah mattinson sent me a picture of you know the you know the famous um seen in the sitcom community which uh for people who haven't seen it, I'll, I'll tweet it when the podcast comes out in which a character returns with pizza to a burning room and there's like yeah deborah mattinson on her first day in the leader's office <laughs> i mean I, I, as with the idea that having a better shadow chancellor can 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 pull push push this upstream i just think yeah i i just think what the real shuffle shows is this is not a serious project for power on the deborah mattinson point i would add to that that the, she she is sort of, I think there's an understanding, I don't know how fair this is or not, but I think she's thought of as a bit of a Blairite by um, lots of Labour MPs. But the really, really striking thing is that literally all of them that I spoke to from any bit of the Labour Party were saying that they think it's a great appointment because, to use their phrase, they, they're just so pleased that there's going to be a grown-up in the room. Um, I think that the, this, this sense that she... Um, is a very experienced big hitter coming in to work on strategy for Keir Starmer is is actually one of the few bits of this reshuffle that makes total sense and that has that has gone down very well across the board. I also think she does bring a bit of institutional memory. You know what I was saying before about how 
you know, people seem to think suddenly that Labour's collapsed because of Corbyn or because of Brexit. She brings a bit more institutional memory to to the game. Um, I think she was doing focus groups for for Labour during the 80s and 90s. And she was, you know, the pollster for, for, for Gordon Brown, um, as well as, you know, having done lots of recent work. She, she did the review into why Labour lost the election in 2015, which was quite a damning review about why sort of voters were put off by the party and sort of condemned, um, not condemned, but identified Labour as being sort of in denial about its problems. So I suppose she she brings that kind of longer term view. But it it yes, you know, she's been given this official position within the leadership team, but it depends on whether or not they, they want to listen. Um, so that's the big test. I wouldn't say it's sort of a sign that they they know what problems they have yet. It's how they use that information because you can use you can use focus group information all wrong if you if you're not willing to listen to what you actually you know have to change. Yeah, I think this is the thing isn't like one of the slightly amusing memes, right? Then like, and obviously this is what all Labour factions do. But you know, you have like you know people um, from the Corbynite project going, oh, you know, huh, why don't they get focus groups? It's like, well, the Corbynites use focus groups, but in their effective phase, they used it in an astute way, you know, Easter policy blitz, you know, police cuts, yada, yada, all of that stuff, right? But the thing is, is ultimately like, you know, it's the old, gar- well, I guess it's not garbage in, garbage out, right? It doesn't matter how good the quality um, you you put into your model if the person reading the model uh, lacks political instincts. And yeah, I think I completely agree. Uh, and in fact, the central test here is it is, it is useful that they will have someone who will, I think, be a pushback against this very worrying meme in Labour circles where people like, you know, they need like they're like, we need to get back to like the winning era of 2010 to 15. And it's just like, guys, the, the 2010 to 15 era was a, a disaster from soup to nut. Um, yeah, like, and some people like, you know, what they need is a heavyweight. And then it's like the name of someone who, 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 who failed in an opposition post. And it's like, why is that a good idea? Uh, and I think it's positive to have all of that, but, but, Thus far, um, Keir Starmer's um, reaction, one of the things, you know, was when Rupert you know, was, oh, you know, you know, oh, you know, they need to stamp out, you know, this uh, culture of hostile briefing. Well, one, there hasn't been that much hostile briefing um, from anyone in the Labour Party, actually, about Keir Starmer. And what little there has been has been about the quality of his staff. Now, um, and his approach to this has always been to, to to exile people who raise this to outer darkness. And so, yeah, despite the fact that exactly as Alva says, um, you know, people who who very much um, do not agree with with either the Deborah Macken's real or perceived politics have basically said things to me like, yeah, thank goodness they're going to have someone who's going to look around and be like, what the fudge? <laughs> um, and and that, that, that is probably true. Again, this is this is. I do think this is the central thing. Is the question the question that has that has inevitably been left by this is is Keir Starmer a serious person? Uh, my conclusion, uh, you know, from the first round of you know, various calls I made across the Labour Party and movement on Saturday was then what we had seen was he wasn't. That is the big the big thing he has to prove to the parliamentary party to prove to the various stakeholders. Because if you're not a serious person, you aren't you aren't going to be able to become. Prime Minister, and if you're not a serious person, there's a possibility you you may actually finally be the person who stress tests whether or not there is a point where the Labour Party might actually get rid of its leader. And I think I would just add to that that there's a kind of an immediate task for him of of addressing the this new this new wave of disillusionment among Labour MPs and members of the Shadow Cabinet. That I think that 
there's just this this new fracturing people who were feeling loyal last week who feel a little bit less loyal a little bit less listened to a little bit less loved I think that I mean it's great for business but it's not from our perspective but it's not great for Keir Starmer if people feel shut out of decision making feel like their criticisms as you say of his advisors aren't really listened to and they feel emboldened to brief more negatively against him than they have at any point up until now I think this was entirely avoidable um but this feeling it actually really mirrors what was happening with Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings and a feeling like he wasn't listening to his MPs and was you know sitting complacently on his majority and didn't need to listen to people on the ground I think it it ends badly when um politicians stop listening to um their foot soldiers as it were and and don't sort of give them the love and and attention that they really want I don't think it would take very much actually to fix that but he really hasn't fixed it yet and I think it'll be interesting to see if he if he does You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.